One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, my FT Alphaville colleague Alex Skaggs speaks with Lena Khan about her report in the Yale Law Journal, which looks into how Amazon's unique organizational structure and business strategy potentially raise antitrust issues that current antitrust law isn't particularly well designed to address. This article has made quite the splash in the media and in legal circles, and given Amazon's recent purchase of Whole Foods, this discussion seems more relevant than ever. Joining me in the studio now to discuss and introduce her conversation with Lena Khan is Alex Gags. Alex, hello. Hi, Cardiff. Thanks for having me. So I think the first thing we should do is just talk about who Lena Khan is and why you decided to talk to her. So Lena Khan is a fellow with the Open Markets Program at New America. And I wanted to reach out to her because I saw this great paper that she wrote for the Yale Law Journal, and it was about Amazon's position in the market and its sort of unique place in e-commerce as both a provider of services and a competitor of some other people who are providing goods and services. Yeah, such a great paper. And I think what I like most about it is that it was the first kind of comprehensive piece I'd seen looking at potentially what might be antitrust problems uh, that Amazon poses, not now necessarily, but into the future. Uh, And I think uh, before we get to the conversation itself, we should just pause for a minute to reflect on how weird of a company Amazon actually is. Yeah, it's really in in a unique place, at least compared to recent history, just because it is sort of at the center of all of these different things that have been changing in the economy. You know, you talked a little bit uh, before about productivity and the sort of productivity gains that come because of Amazon. And it's sort of a platform and a service, both at the same time. And so it's a it's a really interesting company. And it is so fundamental to a lot of things that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, we had an earlier discussion on the podcast about the retail sector generally. And it touched on Amazon. But to be honest, I left that conversation feeling like I had a really kind of inadequate or incomplete understanding of just what Amazon represents in the economy. Uh, And here's what I mean. There's no other company that does quite what Amazon does. So if you look at it, it's not really dominant in too many individual markets, right? Books and cloud services are the two that come to mind. But for the most part in other markets, it's just one of several players. But across all those markets, it is easily the dominant e-commerce retailer, the online dominant uh, presence in all of those other markets. And I don't know how to think about that. Like, I don't know what the threats are, if there are any. You know, maybe they're unseen or maybe they're developing right now. I don't know what it means that when Amazon enters a market, uh, it spooks all of the competitors. Because on the one hand, you'd think that that means it's introducing pro-competitive forces. It's driving down costs. It's forcing rivals to be more and more uh, efficient and productive themselves. On the other hand, 
if it's using things like predatory pricing or it's starting to establish its own dominance, then what does that mean for the future? What does it mean for the overall competitive landscape? And I think Lena's paper was the first I've come across that really takes a look at that and also frames it into the wider context of antitrust law uh, and how that has also evolved over the years. Right. And an interesting point there that, that Lena Khan's paper makes is that predatory pricing was considered a myth for a really long time in U.S. law, which is really funny because now, like you mentioned, you know, people talk about Amazon's pricing as literally driving people out of business and, and intended to drive people out of business. But, you know, if if you believe in a certain view of efficient markets, then you think that doesn't make any sense. And a lot of that view, I guess, has been sort of uh, adopted by a lot of the people who are enforcing antitrust actions. Yeah, th- this is probably a good segue uh, into the uh, beginning of your conversation, to which we'll turn in a second. Uh, you start by asking Lena about the Chicago School of Antitrust Law, which became more and more popular starting roughly in the 1970s and 1980s, before I think antitrust law took a more kind of holistic view of what the competitive landscape actually looked like. So it didn't just focus on keeping prices low uh, on gains for consumers, near-term gains for consumers. Um, It also focused on whether or not there were barriers to entry uh, and whether or not entrepreneurs uh, were able to come into a new market and compete effectively. Uh, It looked at size and it looked at product variety and not just keeping prices low. Uh, In any case, uh, it has some kind of intriguing reverberation. So that's where it starts. Anyways, uh, this was a great chat. Thanks for doing this, Alex. Thank you. And here is Alex Gaggs talking to Lena Khan. Well, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come here. And I was wondering if, first of all, just to establish sort of the the scene that that we're all in, um, if we could talk about sort of the basics of antitrust and the way that regulators have seen it since maybe the pre-Chicago school. You, You talk about in your paper economic structuralism and the transition from that into the Chicago school and sort of that kind of approach. Um, and could you explain that? Sure. In the U.S., um, Congress first passed antitrust laws, and the first antitrust law was the Sherman Act in 1890, followed by the Clayton Act in 1914. And both of these statutes were written quite broadly. Um, they broadly prohibited anti-competitive conduct and monopolization. And so it was primarily left up to the courts to try and define what that was. Um, in this way, these statutes were almost constitutional, like they were just asserting broad principles and then kind of deferring to both the executive agencies, but also the judiciary to kind of, you know, flesh out what that means in any given context. But for the first few decades, we really took an expansive view of how to assess competition and what the harms to competition were. Um, So we looked at, you know, the harms to consumer, but we also took into account effects on workers and kind of entrepreneurship more generally. So to try to look at whether particular concentration in a market would render that market kind of closed to newcomers um, or whether it would kind of, you know, preserve an open and level playing field. We also took into account kind of, you know, whether whether a particular merger would risk undermining local control. So in like the 20s and 30s, as we saw the rise of chain stores, there was a lot of backlash to, to the big chain stores because people felt like the rise of these new conglomerates was depriving, you know, local communities of control and kind of sucking and vacuuming all of this wealth that used to stay local 
far out to New York and a handful of other cities. And so antitrust was was used um, in, in a way to safeguard against ex- excessive concentration and kind of decentralize and disperse control and, and opportunity. They wanted to make sure that the structure was strong enough to promote competition. Exactly. So both the antitrust agencies and um, the courts really looked at structure. So they looked at how a market was structured. They took it face value that, you know, when an industry shifted from being dominated by, you know, 10 or 12 companies to three companies, they interpreted that as a decline in competition. They also looked at things like structural things like conflicts of interest. So there was a concern about vertical integration, for example, because there was a worry that a company could use its advantage in one line of business to discriminate or disfavor, you know, companies in other lines of business. So for example, you know, if you had a uh, baker who also brought out a flour mill, there was a worry that the baker could, um, you know, discriminate against other bakers uh, when providing them with flour. So so that sort of thing, uh, which again was a structural concern because it was really looking at how an entity um, was integrated. And so this approach to antitrust and competition really was prevalent through the 50s and 60s, at which time we um, you know, saw a rising movement with the Chicago School approach to law and economics. This was a much broader movement in the law to kind of impose economic analysis, but it was really founded in antitrust. It, that's where it was seated. And this new approach to antitrust argued that the kind of broad set of concerns that had initially animated antitrust were kind of too broad and vague, and instead we needed a more administrable and predictive standard. And what was offered was consumer welfare. So Robert Bork famously wrote The Antitrust Paradox, um, where he said that the only proper goal of antitrust should be to promote consumer welfare. Theoretically, consumer welfare can encompass a host of factors, you know, quality, variety, you know, innovation. But in practice, it really primarily has come down to price, in part because price is much more easily measurable. And so kind of the broad and rich set of concerns that we had previously considered when assessing, you know, whether a merger might be anti-competitive was now largely collapsed to price. And importantly, the kind of, to go back to your structuralism point, the idea that, you know, once a market has as fewer competitors, that de facto means there's less competition, that assumption would, was discarded. So now, you know, frequently a distinction is made between harm to competitors and harm to competition, which I think is a valid distinction, but taken to the extreme, it becomes kind of nonsensical because it's also impossible to have competition without competitors. And so this has been the shift to price theory, where, you know, there's a much more reliance on certain kinds of predictive economic models, which are a lot more price-centric. Yeah, and this does remind me of this sort of rising dominance of quantification as the standard for everything, right? Like if you if you want to prove something, you can't say, oh, well, logically, you know, this leads to that leads to that. You have to show the evidence. You have to show the numbers. But what's interesting about it is that reading your paper made me realize that this has always been more of a political economy issue, not just a sort of quantified by the numbers things. And you had this great quote from John Sherman, which like, you know, made me feel like I should wave a flag around or something. He says, if we will not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation, and sale of any of the necessities of life. If we would not submit to an emperor, we should not submit to an autocrat of trade with power to prevent competition and to fix the price of any commodity. The structuralist viewpoint was one, I guess, of political economy rather than just 
prices. And I know that the Bork's view was a little bit more nuanced than saying, okay, we just want the cheapest stuff. But it does seem like the view or the approach that you're taking or or sort of putting forward is a little bit more back in the political economy direction. From that perspective, I guess we can maybe take a look at Amazon. It's such this weird thing. Just in in the context of history, it's, you know, it's so big. Um, You said you mentioned in your paper, and I think this has been backed up elsewhere, it has 46% of e-commerce. You know, we we were looking over at uh, Bespoke Research earlier, which is this research shop on Wall Street, and they actually have an index of Amazon survivors, which is amazing. There was a Bloomberg story in the last few weeks that was um, counting up the number of times that Amazon was mentioned on investor calls and calculated that Amazon was more frequently mentioned than Trump or the White House or kind of D.C. politics, which I think also, you know, identifies the, yeah, the kind of current issues on on executives' minds. And you did uh, make a nice point, too, that when people are, are concerned about monopoly power or about you know, market concentration, the political influence is a part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this goes back to the founding vision of antitrust. And I mean, think the Sherman, the Senator Sherman quote that you um, quoted captures it perfectly. I mean, we, we really understood anti-monopoly as safeguarding democracy from excessive concentrations of wealth and power. And we understood that in the same way that excessive concentrations of power undermine democracy in the political sphere, it also undermines democracy in our commercial sphere. And I mean, nowadays, this way of thinking has been somewhat lost, but there really was an idea of, of what Louis Brandeis used to call industrial democracy, the idea that to promote a democracy, we need to think not just about, you know, how, how we all vote and ensuring that in our, you know, civic political sphere, uh, we're, you know, able to promote, you know, self-governance. But we really also need self-governance in our markets because he understood that, you know, the the right to own one's own business and kind of the marketplace um, transactions really do also affect the citizenry in a really critical way. And so in the same way that, you know, when structuring our government, um, certain checks and balances were put in place to safeguard against concentrations of power. Similarly, anti-monopoly and antitrust were viewed as a way to ensure that those same structural protections would, you know, prevent excessive concentration in um, our economic sphere. That makes sense. And it sort of goes to the whole, the joke that people make, uh, businesses are people too. But (laughs) part one of your paper, you talk a little bit about, you know, during the shift from structuralism to the Chicago school approach to this regulation. So that sort of shows up in the world or the real world in a couple of ways. And one is the price theory um, with predatory pricing and the company's ability to sort of drive competitors out by cutting prices. And the other one is vertical integration, um, where companies that are dominant can buy the companies that sell to them and the companies they sell to. Could you talk about the predatory pricing issues and sort of how the approach to that changed? Traditionally, um, you know, our anti-monopoly and antitrust laws prohibited um, or took a skeptical view of predatory pricing, um, which is, you know, when a company is able to price below cost to drive out competitors and raise competition that way. And it's important just to step back and understand that the principle at work here with predatory pricing laws was to try and 
limit abuse of power because you know allowing a well capitalized company to use that capital to drive out its rivals in this way was something that we thought should be anti-competitive and so you know how the courts interpreted uh, what constituted predatory pricing varied but but generally uh, we took a very skeptical view of when it seemed like a company was not just lost leading on a particular item but bleeding money in an entire segment in a way that made competing with it you know unfeasible and again this is an issue that propped up um, when, you know, the chain stores were becoming more dominant and they were, you know, using their size to drive out smaller rivals in part through engaging in predatory pricing. What the price theory approach or kind of what the Chicago School approach to to predatory pricing um, has done is, is really, it's basically an assumption that predatory pricing is irrational. And, you know, Bork wrote about this, and then the Supreme Court ended up kind of adopting his view. And they enshrined in, in case law and doctrine, the idea that predatory pricing is highly unlikely. And the only instance in which it would occur, or in, in order to be able to prove it, a plaintiff needs to be able to show not just that a company was pricing a good below cost, but that it would be able to later on raise the price on that same good sufficient to recoup any of the losses that it had incurred. In practice, this is extremely difficult to show for a variety of reasons. Oftentimes, it's difficult to predict, you know, how long a predatory pricing campaign will last for. So it's difficult to, you know, identify at what point in the future a company will choose to raise money. Oftentimes, you know, a rival company who has the incentive to bring that kind of suit is, you know, already out of business and doesn't have an incentive to bring that case, you know, by the time when a company does go on to raise prices. There are also ways in which a company can recoup losses without directly raising prices on this particular good. So there are whole, just a whole host of ways in which this new recoupment standard uh, made bringing predatory pricing cases in practice a lot more difficult. And the numbers bear that out. I mean, you know, predatory pricing cases in the U.S. have plummeted since the late 80s. And so that's kind of the regime in which we're living right now. How do you really distinguish with any real clarity between loss leading and bleeding out competitors? If that's the thing that you really need to prove... To, to have any of these cases actually stick, it seems sort of like a fuzzy distinction, though if you have something more concrete, that seems like that would be helpful. It is fuzzy. I mean, it is something that during my research I tried to look into. And I mean, there was a general sense that loss leading is more benign because um, it's oftentimes more short term. It's oftentimes, you know, a way to kind of get consumers to come into your store. So, you know, you might be offering, um, you know, discount on cheese uh, in order to get consumers to come in and also buy milk. You know, so there's just a, a way in which you can assume that it's more of a advertising hook, if anything, or a promotional deal that's kind of, you know, trying to ultimately you know, enhance the sale of, of goods more generally. Predatory pricing is viewed in an anti-competitive way insofar as kind of the primary goal there is seen to be not so much the selling of more stuff, but the driving out of rivals. And so that's at least the distinction that, you know, I think lawyers and the courts apply is kind of like what is the goal here? Is it just to sell more stuff? And so is, you know, one good just being temporarily priced below cost in order to just promote sales more generally? Or is a company engaging in an aggressive pricing war in order for, you know, to drive out its rivals or to weaken them so that, you know, it can then perhaps offer a bid to buy them up or something? But that's part of the challenge, right? The, the distinction, because you could say, oh, I'm putting these prices super low just because, 
you know, I would like to gain some foothold in this. And then it sort of ends up leading out the competitors incidentally. So it just seems like that is sort of a, an interesting gray area. To speak a little bit more also about the, the other place where the approach to regulation really changed seems to be vertical integration, you say in your paper. Antitrust enforcement used to take a very skeptical view of vertical integration and cross-ownership more generally, against because there was an awareness that these kinds of integrated, structured, created basic conflicts of interest that could lead to, you know, closing out rivals in unfair ways. And so, you know, this is kind of the discrimination example that I was describing earlier. The, the two kind of technical terms in, in the law um, are leverage and foreclosure. So those are, you know, the traditional harms when it comes to vertical integration. Foreclosure being um, when you are, you know, shutting out rivals in one of the lines of business because you compete with them in another line of business. And leverage is when you're using your advantage in one line of business to enhance another line of business. And so these were two of the traditional concerns when it came to vertical integration and courts took a, yeah, both courts and the antitrust agencies took a very skeptical view. The Chicago School offered a view that vertical integration is almost always benign um, under the more kind of extreme proponents of this view. I mean, they would really say that vertical integration is never anti-competitive. The courts have generally, you know, adopted a similarly accepting view of vertical integration. I think the change has been most significant at the level of um, the agencies. I mean, the, you know, this started under President Reagan, but even since then, the antitrust agencies have not really challenged any vertical deal. Um, Even under the Obama administration, you know, two massive vertical deals were permitted. Live Nation, Ticketmaster, and Comcast, NBC, uh, which are, you know, two vertical deals that a lot of critics, you know, said would pose certain problems and potentially, um, you know, hurt content producers and musicians. But because this very benign view of vertical integration has prevailed, um, there really wasn't any legal opposition. So we can think about that from the context of Amazon, too. Right. So if we look at the way that Amazon has vertically integrated, one of the one of the key challenges there seems to be the fact that Amazon's customers are also its competitors. A lot of the time you've got a, a company selling some sort of homeware or home good or something like that. And then they see later on Amazon Basics, you know, conveniently timed a little bit later, conveniently priced a little bit cheaper, you know, offering a thing to compete. It seems like that that would fit into your idea of a of sort of a gray area that current law doesn't really approach in in an aggressive way. Exactly. And I think what's interesting about Amazon is that you see a lot of the traditional concerns about vertical integration come back with uh, astounding force in part because Amazon is an information age company, right? So it's able to collect so much information and data on the companies using its platforms as producers or as suppliers and then is able to use that information against those same companies when it's competing with them. And I think that is a core conflict of interest um, that, you know, you see across Amazon's businesses. And I think that is a um, real problem and something that deserves to be, um, you know, viewed as potentially anti-competitive. And this goes back also to a question you set out in section two of your paper, um, where you talk a little bit about this sort of framework, when you, when you look at this stuff, you know, a lot of people now in the Chicago school especially looked at this as an outcome-driven thing, but you propose shifting to more of a process thing. Like, okay, if, if a process of doing something, like if a process of hosting a competitor on your platform gives you an incentive to 
sort of undercut your competitor at every turn, then it's a structural issue, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I suggest that we kind of shift back away from thinking about effects and outcomes to um, structure and process. And I, I think, you know, we should do this for a couple of reasons. One is that it's actually more administrable. So, you know, it's, it's ironic because one of the critiques of the Chicago School was that we need to move away from this, like, all these fuzzy standards and all these values and how do we actually, you know, weigh them. But when you have structural prohibitions, it's much easier for a government to, um, you know, identify when a merger is anti-competitive and you don't need to have this, like, very resource-intensive case-by-case inquiry because you can just say certain structures are anti-competitive and apply a prophylactic ban. Um, this is something that we also used to see, for example, in media, um, in the media sector. So, you know, there were certain prohibitions and that said if you own the pipes, you can't also create the content. And so the, I think those kinds of limits make it much easier both to regulate this fear, um, but it also, I think, puts the burden of proof on the companies to show if we want to merge, um, then, you know, we have to overcome this presumption that this is anti-competitive. And I think that's one of the key weaknesses in the current antitrust regime is that the burden, for the most part, is on the government to show why something would be anti-competitive. And so I think returning to kind of a focus on structure and process uh, would correct for that. What are the risks here, though, that you know, focusing on that stuff and maybe, you know, splitting up Amazon in whatever ways and making it the parts of it be separately owned. What if stuff just gets more expensive? It's it's possible. I mean, I think I think it's certainly possible that, you know, departing from this approach to antitrust would in some areas lead to higher prices. I think there's reason to think that Going this way, though, could still safeguard against higher prices in the long run. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about the current moment in antitrust debate is that we're seeing that even under the consumer welfare approach, prices have actually risen across the economy routinely after agencies permit mergers. And so, in fact, you know, even for this one metric that we supposedly care about, the current approach to antitrust is not actually doing a great job at, you know, ensuring that prices don't rise. Um, I think with Amazon, it's really difficult to get a sense for what a competitive price would be because Amazon has distorted the playing field in such an extreme way. And, you know, obviously it enjoyed a tax um, advantage across rivals for many years. Um, you know, that's been mitigated to some degree now. But I think I think the question of would prices rise if we took certain actions against Amazon is maybe unfair because it's not clear that the baseline right now is the right place to be. You used a really good example of diapers.com and how Amazon cut prices and cut prices and cut prices in these products. And then after it had been acquired, all of the discounts slowly and very gradually disappeared. And you used an example of a customer uh, talking on a on a message board saying, I'm going to take my business back to diapers.com when it no longer existed. Right, exactly. And another customer pointed out that, you know, it had been bought out. Yeah, I mean, it was really fascinating just to observe, you know, the reaction to Amazon's acquisition, because, again, even under the, you know, recruitment analysis, Amazon did, in fact, go on to effectively raise prices in this way. And this goes back to an interesting paper in sort of school of thought that I, I don't know if you read Matt Levine much from Bloomberg View, but he does a lot of this stuff that 
ownership of these big companies and these big sectors by big index funds sort of disincentivizes competition, uh, which I always found really interesting and sort of a fun idea. I'm not sure how it actually works legally or in, in that process, but that, that seems like a, like a comparable thing. Yeah, I think that a lot of the research on kind of institutional investors and, you know, whether there is an anti-competitive effect here is a really interesting question. And I think something that antitrust is also figuring out. There have been a couple of papers suggesting that, you know, that the government or a private party could potentially bring suit on these grounds. But I think it's still in its kind of nascent stages. You also, I think you cited a venture capitalist from a story talking about Amazon, because this also references the fact that investors still love Amazon, even though it loses money fairly regularly, there's growth. And that's what they're looking for generally. Um, But you had this venture capitalist saying, I don't see any cleaner monopoly available to buy in the public markets right now. Right. And I think this goes to um, one of my arguments when I talk about predatory pricing. You know, the the current law assumes that a company is a short-term profit maximizer. And Amazon has acted, you know, very differently. I mean, it bled money for the, you know, first seven, eight years it was in business. And capital markets have, you know, largely given it a free pass to pursue growth over, you know, paying dividends. And so that places Amazon in a very different, you know, sphere than than most other companies because it has effectively, you know, endless access to capital. Um, And it's able to, you know, lose money on certain segments or invest aggressively in ways that no other company potentially could. I mean, I think the real question is, you know, why are investors treating Amazon this way or viewing Amazon this way? And I think this gets to some of the perhaps, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say intrinsic qualities, but some of the tendencies in online markets, which is that, you know, that you have network effects, you have the self-reinforcing advantages of data, which makes platform sectors kind of winner take all. And so I think, you know, if if investors have identified that and, and identified Amazon as the winner in this space, and it kind of makes sense to allow it to pursue growth um, somewhat endlessly because you know it will ultimately be able to achieve a position that that no rival will reasonably be able to compete with. Yeah, and that actually gets to one of the one of my favorite parts of your paper, which was towards the end. I thought it was just really really clever. Uh, you talked about the way that investors treat Amazon and treat these uh, network platforms. And you also said, okay, so their valuations are very high. So in an efficient market, like this wouldn't make any sense. And and the efficient markets hypothesis is basically the idea that, you know, prices reflect exactly like the state of reality, perfectly rational. And actually, a lot of the Chicago school thought is based on that. And so it's sort of this idea driving the Chicago school's thought showing that investors expect Amazon to have so much market power that their, you know, their money, all the sort of short-term losses will be paid back, which I, I thought was extremely clever. And also a very good point, because valuations on Amazon are, are very high and have, have been high for a long time. Right. I mean, I use that as a way to just show that it seems like the law is no longer capturing a reality that, you know, investors and in our markets are clearly pointing towards. So one of the things you point out in your paper is the power of platforms. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's definitely a kind of growing and burgeoning field in kind of the antitrust competition space. I think 
we're seeing more and more research identifying the ways in which platforms in some ways kind of confound traditional antitrust assumptions. A lot of that has to do with kind of the stickiness of markets and also kind of the potential entry barriers that you do see. Um, So this is kind of a debate that you saw when the FTC was investigating Google and kind of thinking about, you know, is Google potentially monopolistic in search and what does that mean for rivals and you know Google had this great phrase that was competition is just one click away and I think you see that mentality when we're talking about platforms more generally it's that you know a lot of times the goods that are being provided to consumers are free anybody can just create a website on the internet you know the traditional barriers to entry that you know you saw when we're talking about like railroads or kind of industrial giants, those don't exist in the same way. And so I think there's a lot more research showing that, no, in fact, you do see a lot of entry barriers in the online space, um, which requires us to, you know, police dominance a lot more closely. Um, I think there's also more and more research looking at the effects the kind of accelerating effects of data when it comes to entrenching dominance. Um, So there's um, a great book by Maurice Stuckey and Alan Grunez on kind of big data and competition. Um, There's a lot of great work being done in Europe, in part because the European antitrust and competition authorities have taken a more skeptical view when it comes to um, American tech companies. From an American perspective and and U.S. law, you you present a couple of ways to approach the dominance of, say, a company like Amazon or an ultra-concentrated industry. And do do you mind taking us through those? Well, the Amazon particularly, I think... And with platforms more generally, I think, you know, it's worth acknowledging that certain kinds of concentrations can be very useful. You know, there are reasons why you might, in fact, want all of our commerce to be transacted, you know, in one central place. It does, in fact, make things a lot, you know, easier uh, in many ways for both buyers and sellers. I think in those instances, the key question becomes, you know, do we want no public oversight over how the entity controlling this very important infrastructure. So I think, you know, the kind of traditional question in antitrust is like, if you acknowledge that a company has too much power, you can either break up that power or you can regulate it and prevent abuse of that power. So I think with Amazon, you know, there are certain lines of its business that I think you can imagine, you know, breaking apart. So to go back to the conflicts of interest we were talking about earlier, there's no reason that Amazon as a platform for independent sellers should necessarily be part of the same company where Amazon is selling its own, you know, private label goods. Um, And so I think, you know, separating those entities, for example, is something that you can um, foresee. I think when it comes to its platform more generally, you can think about applying um, what are known as kind of non-discrimination principles. And in some way, this is an echo of kind of net neutrality, which, you know, is kind of taking a similar situation where you have these critical gatekeepers that are in some ways controlling infrastructure and ensuring that they're not able to discriminate or kind of pick winners and losers among the people that are dependent on their infrastructure. And this is also a principle that we saw articulated in the EU recently um, when, when the competition authorities issued its fine against Google. And when issuing that fine in their statement, you know, the EU said we are, you know, embracing a principle of equal treatment, which kind of similarly gets to this idea that, you know, if you have a company that is controlling infrastructure, there are certain kind of obligations that come on that company or kind of limits on how it can use its power. So I think, you know, there are two approaches. One is think about these potential, 
you know, common carrier type principles. But I think the other approach is returning to more traditional structural bans on certain forms of vertical integration to ensure that the kinds of conflicts of interest we were talking about don't emerge. There are plenty of models for that, too, out there, right? You mentioned bank holding companies as an example. And I've covered that. My colleagues at Alphaville have covered that. And it seems fairly simple and straightforward that you have the, you know, the commercial bank incorporated as one entity and then a, a related but not, you know, not the same broker dealer. And they, they tend to keep those separate and they're regulated differently and have all these sort of structures to oversee both. So what else do you think that we should be talking about when we're talking about regulating large, powerful companies? Yeah, I mean, I think different companies pose different problems. I mean, you know, I discussed Amazon and showed how, you know, when it comes to online commerce, um, in many ways, we are no longer confronting kind of an open competitive marketplace. We're instead confronting a marketplace, you know, increasingly controlled by a single actor. I think when you think about Google and Facebook, um, you see some analogous concerns, but I think some of these concerns are heightened, partly because these are information markets. And so I think even traditionally in competition and antitrust law, media markets were, you know, viewed as being a particular concern because we understood that the stakes of what information a citizenry is able to access and on what terms um, are much higher than just, you know, are we able to get cheap goods? It's, it's, an exciting time in antitrust because I think there's renewed interest in a lot of these issues more generally. Um, I think, you know, there's been growing awareness that the American economy is increasingly consolidated and concentrated. Um, you know, The Economist magazine itself has had like four cover articles, you know, lamenting the decline of competition in America. So, I mean, I think this is becoming a more mainstream view. I think even politically, we could see some traction on this point. You know, the Democrats recently announced their Better Deal agenda, uh, which identified antitrust and competition policy as a key pillar of their economic agenda going Going forward, you know, whether there ends up being teeth to that, I think, is an open question. But certainly, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren has identified anti-monopoly as a key issue, um, you know, which I think echoes some of her work in the banking and financial regulation space. I think I've been very surprised um, by how swiftly the kind of atmospherics on this issue have shifted. And I think, you know, with certain opportunities, um, we could actually see politics on this shift quite quickly. So one additional question I have about this this broad approach to, to antitrust regulation is, where do you stop and, and how do you weigh the potential harm? And, and I know that this was a big thing of the Chicago School. They focused very, very strongly on the potential harm that could be done uh, by all of this. But there is a case to be made. You know, Amazon is investing a lot. Not very many companies out there are investing very much. Amazon is very productive. Broadly, the U.S. economy productivity is, is sort of struggling. And so if we, if we end up, you know, sort of targeting those companies that are driving growth, you know, how do you see the potential, the potential effects? I mean, what, what's the risk? Yeah, I mean, I don't really view it as an issue of targeting companies. I think it's about how do you preserve an open and competitive marketplace? I mean, I think to go back to the investing question, you could argue, you know, perhaps other companies are not investing in part because they don't have access to capital in the same way, in part because investors know that there's no reasonable shot of competing against Amazon. So I think it's it's hard to kind of define what, you know, like the baseline should be. I think the administrability question of, you know, how do you weigh harms when you're taking into account non-price 
factors is, is an important question. I think going back to kind of the structural limits can help address that because it's kind of baking into the system certain presumptions that you have against mergers and kind of putting the burden on companies to, to rebut that. I think more generally, it, it ends up being kind of a calculus between over-deterrence or under-deterrence. And I think we've been living in, you know, 40 years of under-deterrence and kind of a being afraid of too much enforcement. And I think that has gotten us to a very particular place, um, you know, with competition across sectors is flagging. Um, and I think, you know, that can be linked to, linked to certain productivity declines, poss- possibly. Um, there's a host of research more generally that's looking at the effects of um, declining competition on, you know, startup formation, on new business growth, on kind of labor markets more generally, on kind of, you know, stagnant wages. And so I think as, it, as these links become clearer, I think, you know, I think we can find ways in which using antitrust and competition to make sure that marketplaces are competitive can then set the baseline for, you know, other policy areas to to do work in other areas. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that antitrust is kind of the tool to do everything. You know, we also need like labor law and kind of, you know, other areas of law to address other imbalances in the economy. But I too think generally we've been living in an era where antitrust has kind of been relegated to the technocrats and its importance uh, more centrally to our political economy um, has been forgotten. And I think insofar as we're moving back to a political economic understanding of antitrust, that's great. It is interesting that we've reached this sort of tipping point. And I thought your your point on access to capital was really interesting, too, because you can see the sort of rates, you know, I've, I've covered the bond market for a while, and the interest rates that are paid by a Google or even a big bank or anything like that is is much, much different than the sort of interest rates on debt that are paid by smaller companies, high yields. And the high yield market is actually shrinking. So the, the amount of debt outstanding from small sort of lower quality or lower credit quality companies has gotten a lot smaller, while these big companies that can afford to issue a ton of debt have issued uh, tons and tons of debt. And that, that I think, speaks directly to your, your point about access to capital. And of course, the market sort of self-corrects there. Um, but it, it does, I think, sort of feed back into this winner-take-all kind of loop. Right. And I mean, I, you know, it's become kind of cliche, but I think oftentimes, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, a lot of startups, they're end game in mind now is not so much kind of competing against one of these companies, but, you know, being brought up by them. And so I think especially as more and more of kind of the ecosystems in the tech space become centered around a handful of companies, I think you're going to see that dynamic even more. And also, I'm just wondering, you know, we talk about Amazon and these things that we use sort of every day. I mean, do you use Amazon? It's a a pretty useful... Uh, yeah, I, I use Amazon, and I, and I don't think I think Amazon's usefulness and kind of the benefits it's delivered to consumers is undeniable. And I mean, I think that's why it presents such an interesting question for antitrust, and why I call you know the piece Amazon's antitrust paradox is because under the consumer welfare regime, you know, it's possible for Amazon to monopolize the economy without triggering our anti-monopoly laws. And so I think you know it's it's more a question of do we move past kind of viewing the potential harms to competition beyond just kind of through a consumer-centric lens. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for taking the time, Lena. The paper is Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, and it is definitely worth a read. Thanks so much.
And that is the end of Alex's chat with Lena Khan. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. And to see show notes for this episode and all other prior episodes, go to ft.com forward slash alphachat. Please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, formerly housed at iTunes. We really do appreciate that, and it helps other people find out about us. I'm on Twitter, at Cardiff Garcia. Alex, where are you on Twitter? I am at Alexandra Skaggs. And finally, this episode was about antitrust law. And I got to be honest with you, there's a chance that Alpha Chat itself might run afoul of antitrust authorities because we jealously protect the excellence bestowed upon us by the production and editing of Amy Keene. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.